Welcome to Talk Dizzy to Me, the show that brings you a comprehensive look into the complex field of dizziness. Now here are your hosts, vestibular physical therapist, Dr. Abby Ross and Dr. Danielle Tate. Welcome back everyone to Talk Dizzy to Me. My name is Abby Ross, vestibular physical therapist and neuroclinical specialist joined by Danny Tate, also a vestibular physical therapist. And today we have another guest on our show, Dr. Matt Croson. So thank you for joining us, Dr. Croson. Uh, well, yes. Well, thanks a lot for having me. I've uh, listened to a couple of your episodes so far, and this is uh, a great thing you guys are doing. Ah, thank, thank you very much. Yes, thank you. Today, we really want to dive a little bit more into navigating the healthcare system as a vestibular patient, and also even kind of going through diagnosis by diagnosis, who you might want to see first, where you should look for a provider, what you want to look in a or what you want to find in a provider that will be helpful to you as a patient. And what I like about this topic is that we'll really get the MD perspective on this, which I think is very valuable because hopefully they end up seeing you, but what it takes to get there can sometimes be a long process. Well, this is important from a clinical aspect too, because sometimes as a, a physical therapist, you might be the first person this patient sees and you have to know who would be appropriate for your patient to recommend so that you can streamline their process for them and ensure that they're getting the help that they need. So this is important information for both patients and clinicians alike. So thank you so much today for joining us. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. Yes, it's a, uh, a complicated road. So hopefully today we can um, shine some light on on the uh, the Beth pathway for, uh, for a couple of these diagnoses for sure. Great. So Dr. Croson, can you tell our audience a little bit about you, your background, your credentials, how you got into the vestibular world? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a uh, ENT by training, and I've done some extra fellowship training in neuroautology, which is uh, basically a subspecialization with ENT pertaining to just hearing and balance. And so we do uh, surgery uh, this way, as I like to say, uh, going from uh, from the side in the ENT world. And um, but in addition to surgery, too, we also do a lot of medical treatment of um, hearing and balance disorders, um, in addition to stuff we do in, in the operating room. And so um, how I arrived at this. So I, um, I'm, a, I'm a Canadian, but I did a lot of my work in the United States. I did med school at uh, Dartmouth in New Hampshire, and then went down to Duke uh, for my otolaryngology residency, and then back to the mothership in Canada for, at the University of Toronto, um, where I did my neurotology fellowship, and now just started um, at the Massachusetts Pioneer Infirmary um, in a uh, vestibular heavy neurotology practice. Awesome. That's amazing. <laughs> I knew you were from Canada when I read in your bio that you were an avid supporter of ice hockey. <laughs> yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, being down in North Carolina for a while, too, I, was, I, was, I was hurting for a little bit as far as uh, uh, access to the to the frozen water. But now back up the Northeast, I'm happy to uh, to be around that a bit more now. So great. Shall we dive in? Absolutely. Let's get started. All right, so um, why don't we kind of get into talking about the different providers that patients um, might end up seeing with vestibular dysfunction and, and what kind of roles do they have in the process of, of caring for these patients? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think if we think about the symptoms that, that prompt a visit to a uh, healthcare provider of any type, really, it's um, you know, dizziness and vertigo, at least in the vestibular world. And, and so many times, a lot, of, a lot of patients end up in either an urgent care um, in their PCP's office or the emergency room. And um, that's always, you know, a, a good place to start because we don't rule out all the scary stuff. And so sometimes there are things um, like strokes and other neurologic disorders um, that can present with vertigo and dizziness. And so it's really important that if, if there's an acute change, uh, it's always a good idea to seek out, you know, the usual path of care, whether it's your primary care provider or if it's really dramatic, then obviously going to your local emergency department is a good place to start. And so that's where we see a lot of our patients start in these either in the primary care, primary care setting or, uh, or urgent care in the emergency room. Um, but honestly, that's just the start of the journey, right? Because um, from there, many vestibular and, and disorders that present with dizzy and vertigo, they're not acute. And after the, uh, you know, the so-called million dollar workup that happens in the emergency department, or even if they're admitted after, uh, for a couple of days after their initial presentation, they don't find anything. And so that's where we you know, everything kind of fans out as far as uh, where to go to next. And so 
Um, perhaps it might be helpful. I might describe just kind of the constellation of, of that fan and where people may end up going. Um, and so typically when we think about dizziness and vestibular disorders, uh, the, kind of the main cast of characters that play into this are otolaryngologists, which are ENTs. Um, within ENTs, specifically otologists or neurotologists, so ENTs have taken extra time to specialize in hearing imbalance. Then we have neurologists and otoneurologists, and those are obviously neurologists as a practitioner who deals with uh, disorders of the nervous system. But then otoneurologists have are neurologists that have also a focus in the vestibular system, which can be a little bit confusing sometimes with the, with the terminology. And then we have uh, physical therapists, we have audiologists who specialize in vestibular. We have neurosurgeons sometimes that get involved, um, and then we also have um, some complementary medicine pathways such as chiropractic and, and naturopathy and, and things like that. And so, um, and unfortunately, uh, I think with some of the directions sometimes the patients get uh, at the you know, with the first line providers, uh, depend regardless what symptom or what diagnosis they may have, they may end up in one of those buckets after, and that can be a little bit confusing sometimes as far as getting to the, to the, the, the appropriate provider who can provide the treatment that's relevant to their, their disorder. Yeah, and sometimes just having access to those providers. So, you know, neurotologists are not something you come by frequently or often, and typically not in more rural areas that don't have a good medical system that can support their practice. So this could be something that's very difficult for people in, in areas that don't have access to that to find. So they will end up, you know, in some of these other little buckets or areas of um, working with someone that doesn't really have a lot of specialty or expertise in that field. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, also, uh, you know, with the business of medicine too, what can drive these referrals sometimes is your health plan, you know, which can be really challenging because some of these health plans have a gatekeeper model where you have to see one type of provider first before you get a referral to a, you know, to a sub or a sub sub specialist. And, and sometimes the care uh, you may need for your vestibular disorder is unfortunately in the range of the sub sub specialties, which um, which you know involves a couple of hoops you have to jump through to get there. So, um, so certainly, I mean, and and your point is extremely well taken in rural settings where you know um, where we don't have typically these academic medical center meccas that have all the the full bench of, of teammates and in these various specialties. It's incredibly challenging to get access to um, these specific provider types for sure. And we should also mention that some of these specialties will actually either overlap or they will work with one another. So it's not uncommon for balance centers to have audiologists and physical therapists and, you know, neurotologists, ENTs working together under one roof to create a more comprehensive program um, for patients or at least uh, find a way to triage patients and get them to the right provider within their floor or specialty. So again, that's more of a rare thing. You might find that up at MUSC in South Carolina, up near you in Boston, you've got Johns Hopkins, you've got Duke. But again, those are hard to get into. Some appointments might take you six months to get in to see a provider. And um, you kind of have to go with where you can find help. So they could intermingle, they could be their own separate specialties, it could be hard to get to the right one or know who you're going to and who you should be going to. But there, it's a, it's a good thing to note that there are multiple specialties and multiple disciplines that will treat vestibular therapy uh, patients on some level. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I can uh, give a plug to uh, PT for you, Dr. Tate and Dr. Ross. I mean, um, sometimes the physical therapists who have taken a special interest in vestibular disorders know a lot more um, than the neighborhood uh, ENT or, or neurologist. Um, so I wouldn't get too hung up on credentials uh, as far as when you're seeking out um, you know, who to go see because uh, even there are also some audiologists who do some extra training in vestibular as well and are excellent at doing you know, uh, those, those positioning maneuvers for benign positional vertigo as an example. Um, and, and so I think, um, you know, it kind of muddies the water certainly for sure, but um, uh, but I don't think uh, the credential at the end of the name uh, necessarily means that they're, um, you know, they're the most appropriate person too, which unfortunately adds a different layer of complexity. But We might be a little biased, but we would definitely agree with that. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> now, if we take each of these clinicians and and take it a step further, what can we expect as a patient out of maybe the first line of defense going to either the ED or the PCP, primary care? Yeah. And um, I think uh, there's been a, in the literature, people have published all sorts of triage protocols for patients with vestibular disorders and say, you know, if you have this, you know, it may be this, you should go see this person. But I think principally, 
Uh, if you had an acute change where you're acutely vertiginous um, and you know it's new for you and, and and whatnot, it's never a bad idea to get um, you know go to your, your local urgent care in the like I said uh, earlier. Uh, the reason to do that is we kind of want to rule out the scary stuff first. Um, like I said, they're uh, you know having strokes and things like that, especially if you're older. Um, they are rare, um, but uh, but they are you know they are common. They, they get more common as we age, and so that's always the first step to go after that. But um, but but after this, as you mentioned before too, there is a little bit of overlap. But I can walk through kind of specialist by specialist. Perhaps we can we can you know, demystify it a little bit, but. Uh, but typically, um, in the medical MD world, when you have a hearing imbalance disorder, um, uh, your PCP or the emergency room doctor will arrange follow-up for you to see uh, an ENT. And so uh, it may just be a general ENT, um, somebody who has a full breadth of training in ears, ear, nose, and throat disorders. Um, or um, if you're fortunate to live near a place where there is uh, academic medical centers or a, a larger subspecialty group that has neurotology expertise, that may be the first place where you go. And it's always a great first step. I will put a, um, a bit of a caveat on this as far as a lot of us their patients do, do go to ENTs. They end up being not too satisfied with, uh, with that outcome as far as the, the attention paid. And, and part of the dark underbelly of medicine um, in this country and other countries too, is that um, surgeons get paid to do surgery. And, uh, you know, this is, um, I'm free, I'm open book about this. And I know how all, all of this medicine works and, and a lot of ENTs um, uh, choose or not choose or rather not see vestibular patients because a lot of times vestibular patients aren't surgical. Um, and in order to in order to, uh, to get paid for your services as a surgeon, you have to be doing surgeries. And so, for better or for worse, maybe on the latter end of that, a lot of ENTs um, prefer not to see vestibular patients because of that. Uh, because of many patients are are non-surgical and. And that's unfortunate, but it's unfortunately the, the system that we are, are all working in. Um, so, um, you know, if, if you had a choice, if you were um, in a near local uh, urban area where you had uh, neurotology, neurotology expertise close by, um, I think that'd be a great place to start. And, uh, you know, they can, uh, as we, as neurotologists, we have extra training and hearing and balance, and we uh, perhaps know maybe a little bit more than, um, than somebody who hasn't had that extra training. And I think that'd be a good place to start for um, for somebody with a you know, supposed peripheral vestibular disorder, as an example. Um, sometimes you may end up in instead you meet up in the neurologist office because that's just the referral pattern of of that emergency room department. They send pa patients who have had acute dizziness um, to to see a neurologist, and um, and like, as you mentioned before, there's a lot of overlap between the two, um, and oftentimes what the ED doctor may be thinking is that this may be a central neurologic issue. Um, that has caused the dizziness, um, and 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 hence why you might be there. And so, but that uh, unfortunately, what may mean is that they're all just may do an assessment and find no real, you know, as they call it, central signs, and you end up you may end up being in, in, in an ENT office shortly after that too. So, um, we often see that pattern as ENTs. We get a lot of referrals from from neurologists. Um, so that's uh, you know, uh, uh, there is some overlap there, and it can be a bit of a uh, a windy road to get to uh, an ET office through that right as well. But um, and then um, the other providers uh, we had talked about too. So obviously physical therapists, I'm sure you see a lot of a whole variety of vestibular disorders um, as well as you know, our colleagues in audiology as well. Um, and I think specifically too, um, along the lines of um, benign paracetamol positional vertigo or BPBV or the crystal disease, that's a great place to go to because oftentimes the um, PTs have uh, a little more uh, uh, arrows in their quiver, shall I say, for reposition maneuvers um, than uh, the average ENT might too. So, um, and I think we'll probably get into this a little bit, but also what will drive this is kind of the most probable diagnosis, I think, um, as, as far as the best place to go. Um, but um, hopefully it gives a bit of a survey as to where one might end up um, as far as after the, the first PCP or, or ED visit. Absolutely. And as an aside, more from the business aspect of things, you know, you'd mentioned that, you know, surgeons get paid to cut or to do surgery. You know, physical therapists, you get paid because you see patients. And from a business aspect of things, any of you physical therapist clinicians out there who are treating vestibular patients, you've got to do some marketing and you've got to talk to your local ENTs and neurologists because you can be a huge asset to them as almost a form of triage. 
So like you said, a lot of these doctors don't want to see dizzy, especially if it's something simple like a BBV patient. So if you can be a resource to them because maybe they're not used to treating vestibular or they don't want to see as many. Um, I've been in positions before where ENTs will say, hey, listen, I understand you're dizzy. I want you to go see this physical therapist first. They're going to do a real comprehensive evaluation. And then I want you to come see me so we have a better idea of what's going on. So those are a, that's a great referral source for you. It's a great way to put your services and market yourself out there for what kind of um, uh, techniques and, and background that you have for the, the local neurologists and ENTs. But it's also a great way to connect with these um, physicians so that you can refer patients to people that you trust that you know are gonna get in with somebody that can help them. So be sure to make sure you create that multidisciplinary approach because it really is important that although there are all these different avenues that they are all connected in some way so that you can best serve your patient. And to follow up on that too, um, and from the ENT perspective, uh, good PT help is really hard to find and maybe it's be hard to find because we don't know where they are. Um, so I echo your point, Danielle, I think, um, don't feel bashful because we're always looking for good PTs uh, to, uh, to, to to partner up with. And, and so we uh, provide that comprehensive care set, as, as you mentioned, Danielle. Yeah. And along this line, Dr. Croson, can you explain a little bit about your clinical decision making? Who do you automatically refer to PT? Who are you holding back a little bit, seeing how they respond to another intervention or treatment first, maybe, or maybe it's not the right time in their care for physical therapy or vestibular rehab services. Talk to us about your what goes on in your brain when you're thinking about referring to PT versus not. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm quite biased. I'm a huge fan of PT. Um, so maybe I over-refer. Um, you I think want to repeat that again? Just repeat it one more time. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, I, I probably uh, over-refer over to PT because I think you guys can move mountains. Um, and uh, so, and also, I mean, I, I, I've done some extra, I did one of these visitor PT courses at Emory um, as a medical, as a resident. Um, so I kind of have a bit of a window, perhaps maybe more so than the average other uh, neurotologist as to what um, PTs can do, um, not just from a therapeutic perspective, from a diagnostic perspective too. Mm -hmm. um, but oftentimes you guys have more time with the patients than, than the neurotologist or ENT will, right? So Yeah, that's our upper hand is that we not only have more time in an eval, but we follow up with the patient maybe two, three times a week. So we have time to sit with them and pull out more and more information and really see what's affecting their symptoms, what's provoking them, how we can gauge our treatment. So we just, we literally just have more time and more av availability to specialize in one very specific area. Because even with ENT, you've got ear, nose, and throat. And even the vestibular system is just a very small aspect of the ear side of things. So you can't just be pigeonholed into one super specific area because there's so much more to learn. With physical therapy, we can yeah, no, absolutely. And to so circle back um, to address Dr. Ross, your question about my, my thinking about when to send a PT. And so um, we have, um, uh, I mean, breaking down the major, you know, vestibular diagnoses, obviously for, for BPBV, I think, you know, in my practice, what I do is I, I do my own assessment. I do a Dix Hall Pike and we try to ascertain whether or not BPP is present. And sometimes it is in the office and I'm just not, but we oftentimes to go off by of clinical history, really. Um, because if they have that stereotypic positional vertigo turning over in bed, um, and maybe we're not able to listen to that into the office, I will actually um, typically refer a patient on a PT, even though I'm not able to elicit it um, mm -hmm. in the office that day. Um, and then I, you know, kind of snoop in the, in the medical record later and see if uh, if the PT was able to uncover it. Uh, and, and more often than not, I find they, they they were able to, which is great um, because then they can be treated at that at that session. So. Um, and then uh, there is a little bit of um, uh, controversy uh, beyond that as far as who is a, you know, a good candidate for PT. If you read the you know, APTA guideline on this, um, there's, there's this idea that um, stable vestibular lesions are, are good candidates for vestibular PT, whereas, you know, so, so unstable entities such as like a rapidly progressive veneers disease, Mm -hmm. um, um, you know, maybe not, uh, maybe we would see the same gains we would see with a stable vestibular lesion. But, uh, in my case, um, on my, on my functional assessment, on my physical examination, if I see an example, they have an issue with balance on the Romberg or, um, or if they have a lot of head and, and visual, uh, head and, and sorry, well, uh, visual sensitivity rather, um, and they describe having issues with, um, you know, scrolling on their phone and looking up and, you know, all the kind of the, the key cornerstones of what this type of therapy is aimed to treat. Um, uh, based off of those history points, I often will place a referral and I'm probably the, uh, the biggest uh, 
referral generator for the local vestibular PTs here. And uh, because you got all you guys do awesome work, and I think um, in many cases that's it's the major keystone to therapy and getting people back to uh, you know, towards a, a more normal you know, sense of, of of normal or close to normal balance after their vestibular insult. So. Um, so I guess in a nutshell, without getting into too many details of the diagnoses, I, um, I, I'm very quick to refer to, uh, to my excellent PT colleagues here in Boston. And sometimes it's more about treating symptoms, right? Like if somebody's coming in for vestibular migraine, we're not treating a migraine, right? We, there's nothing that we can do for that, but we can work on their visual mismatch or visual sensitivities. We can work on just gaining their confidence with certain activities. Again, same thing with Meniere's if they've had gentamicin injections, just slowly working on getting them back to being functional and compensating along the way. You know, there might not be something that we're directly treating um, for something that's not really recommended to physical therapy, but we're looking more at quality of life. And sometimes for these vestibular patients, just having somebody to talk to that understands what they're going through can be extremely beneficial to helping them feel better and getting them through their um, their diagnosis as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. would agree. So then uh, when you think about your patient caseload, who are you also bringing in an audiologist for? And on top of that, who are you maybe considering more alternative health solutions or even referring to someone uh, with alternative health solutions? Yeah, no, absolutely. So we work uh, in ENT in general, we work very closely with audiology because um, the audiologists are, are the, uh, they offer some of the only real objective tests that we can do of the hearing imbalance systems. And so, um, and this can depend, uh, this can vary a little bit, depend on the local setup as far as who is administering the hearing imbalance tests. But in many cases, audiologists can do, do both. Um, here at the Mass Ioneer, we have a separate vestibular technician team that does our tests, but nonetheless, uh, no matter who's generating it, um, uh, audiologists typically are the, are the quarterback of the, of the diagnostic team. And, and so if you're coming into a neurotologist appointment for vestibular, you often either they will order the tests ahead of time, which include just a you know, simple audiogram to check your hearing function, or sometimes they'll order a whole battery of balance tests, which include caloric tests, which is when they put little warm and, and cold air or water into your ears. They may spin you around in a rotary chair first too, and put electrodes on you and, and measure some electropotentials, uh, all sorts of various tests. And that style of practice can vary. Um, some, some places are very data heavy and they'll rely heavily upon audiology to, to execute those tests before your visit. Sometimes, um, like in my case, I like to meet the patient first and then from there determine what tests may be relevant uh, depending on how they're presenting with their, with their particular symptom profile. But uh, that's how we work very closely with audiology and they're an inseparable part of the team. Uh, and like I mentioned before, some audiologists will even um, do some uh, repositioning maneuvers or BBBV if they uncover it during a vestibular test. Um, um, but uh, I'd say their core, uh, the core contribution to the big multi-D team would really be uh, is driving um, that, that diagnostic workflow for us and getting us all that great data to really um, fill up the whole story of, of what may be going on in the hearing and balance system. They're hugely important. We have a fantastic audiologist down in Savannah that I absolutely, I fell in love with her reports so much. So I felt like a nerd. Uh, we got these great reports in with her finding all these things. I actually asked to come down and see her clinic and talk to her a little bit because I was so happy that they had somebody so um, with it and in the vestibular community, you could tell they really loved what they were doing. So those type of, of clinicians you want to hold on to because they are hugely, hugely important for putting out the right data and finding the right diagnoses and providing patients with the, the proper testing because you don't want to go through calorics more than once. No. <laughs> or a rotary chair test, any of that. You don't want to go through that more than once. Um, so talking about specific disorders, why don't we kind of go through and break down specific disorders of who might be best for those patients to see, um, say they've already reached their diagnosis, you know, where should those patients end up? Yeah, absolutely. So maybe we'll just tackle some of the, the, the most common diagnoses and starting off, um, you know, I think uh, one of the poster children of vestibular disorder is Meniere's disease or Meniere's syndrome. And uh, so typically um, with all these diagnoses, um, some people may not believe or may have heard of this before, but we actually have fairly strict diagnostic criteria in this society called the Brainy Society, which is a society of neurologists and otolaryngologists um, have put together these uh, massive documents that are 30 pages long for each diagnosis that outline criteria for each. And so 
Um, so depending on how who you're seeing, if you work up, you may uh, you may be this may, this may come up in discussion, saying you may you know fall into a diagnostic bucket for one or or actually more more, more than one uh, diagnosis and. Um, but anyway, so getting into Meniere's, and so typically, um, as far as what we do to treat Meniere's, there's things we can do very easy, such as diet control, um, and then we also talk about medications, and then some more invasive things like injections through your eardrum, and then surgeries. And so, um, and I'm biased, but in my opinion, I think probably um, uh, an ENT, or more specifically, a neurotologist, otologist, uh, would be a good quarterback for that team is on the therapy side, because um, otologists, neurotologists, and neurologists can offer that full spectrum of, of care from, you know, for uh, prescribing medications all the way up doing some surgeries um, that may address the, the, the severe function uh, and getting rid of it in some extreme cases. Um, the second, probably the uh, arguably the most common dis uh, vestibular disorder we see these days at these you know, academic medical centers is vestibular migraine. And um, there's some evidence to support that it's even competing with BPBV as one of the most prevalent um, disorders that has vestibular symptoms associated with it. Um, and this is, we get a lot of, and this is a very, uh, very contentious area because this uh, is major overlap for neurology and otolaryngology. Um, a lot of times we'll see neurologists uh, who treat migraine patients, but they um, send us um, their patients who have migraine with vestibular disorders because they, because they feel that as, as otolaryngologists, otologists, we should be the ones managing vestibular symptoms. However, we're not, uh, in our residency, in our fellowship programs, we're not trained to deal with migraine. So uh, unless we take a special interest in, in migraine medicines, uh, which um, uh, can be uh, you know, of varying invasiveness as well, as far as uh, how involved they are, um, th it can be a little confusing as far as who, who's the quarterback of the vestibular migraine team. Um, and so I would recommend um, doing a lot of Googling and, and homework and seeing um, if your local otolaryngologist or your neurologist um, has treated a severe migraine patients before, uh, because um, there is a lot of overlap there and you may end up in the neurologist office, they may um, politely uh, refer you over to an ENT or vice versa. Um, so that diagnosis, I think, um, is particularly, it's a lot of gray there as far as where, where, um, where the best, best place is for, um, for a patient with a severe migraine. Um, BPBV, as we've alluded to before, um, uh, really, I mean, um, even some, uh, we talked about obviously the role of physical therapy for, uh, for ENTs, uh, but even some, I guess we, we should probably should discount some primary care providers, especially maybe in the, in the rural settings too, um, mm -hmm. uh, take interest in BPBV and, and then know how to do the, um, uh, the, uh, you know, the, the crystal repositioning maneuvers. <laughs> Um, so we uh, shouldn't, shouldn't discredit our uh, the expertise of some of our, our primary care providers out there, whether they be MDs or PAs or, or NPs. Um, so, and then I think um, the last big one is uh, probably vestibular neuritis. And so, um, so patients um, sometimes get a, an acute loss of function in one year and hopefully not both years, but typically it happens in one year where we think it's an inflammatory or viral event. And they're vertiginous for three days of complete misery. And then they have these residual symptoms that last for a while um, that often manifest in just imbalance and, and um, visual sensitivity and what have you. And so now I think a, a good first place to, um, uh, to go is to see an ENT because sometimes there are some issues that can be causing a vestibular neuritis, um, mm -hmm. such as a vestibular schwannoma, which is a benign growth on, a, uh, on one of your, on one of the, uh, your cranial nerves uh, inside your skull. Um, but oftentimes, and most often, we have no reason why it happens. Um, and, but the key for getting you back on your feet and, and resolving those uh, residual symptoms is a, a really good relationship with PT, I would say. So that definitely is a, a two-team tandem uh, for treating that disorder, for sure. Yeah, I think kind of a theme throughout any sort of vestibular diagnosis is that it's not a one-man show. It's usually a multidisciplinary approach. And Depending on, again, where you are, rural versus um, urban, actually your care providers will take on different roles. So what I find is that PCPs in a more rural setting tend to know a little bit more about dizziness or vertigo, or sometimes the opposite. They'll say there's nothing you can do about this, even though you can. Um, and in more urban areas, those PCPs are really quick to refer to the specialist because they're available. Now I could say the uh, one silver lining I think about this pandemic that we have going on is the fact that the increased use of telemedicine is becoming more popular, which 
is also allowing specialists in more urban settings to reach out and, and actually be accessible to patients who might not have anything in their area. Um, so that's, that's definitely been one silver lining or positive that's coming out of this. And we've said before, time and time again on other episodes, that patients just have to be their own advocates as well. Uh, if you go see your PCP and they may not know as much or they don't have a specific referral source that sends you to, make sure you're doing your research. Google is a powerful thing. Um, you can find a lot of different people out there and what they specialize in just by doing a little bit of homework if you can tolerate it. Um, so that is that's one nice thing that we have is this access is now growing because of telemedicine. But finding the right uh, person to work with is is definitely important. And we will say it's not always physical therapy. Like you're correct with Meniere's disease. We don't typically treat or want to see those patients unless they've had something like gentamicin in, injections. Um uh, and we, they need some therapy after that. So therapy is definitely not the end-all cure-all, but it does get used very often. But finding the right people to offer the right medications is very important for things like Meniere's and migraine. And even um, in conjunction with 3PD, which is another rising diagnosis that's coming up because patients are having these prolonged symptoms that just won't go away. So multidisciplinary approach is key, but make sure you're also looking for the right people to treat with um, your diagnosis. Yeah, absolutely. Then, Dr. Ross, you, you asked a question earlier about other complementary providers, and, and Dr. You mentioned you know 3PD, you know, persistent postural perceptual dizziness, which is always a mouthful to say. Um, it's really unfortunate long name because gives, gives me a vertigo just talking about it. But um, but, um, but uh, specifically with with 3PD, we have uh, an evidence base where we uh, seek the help of, of some of our mental health professionals, such as uh, psychologists who can administer cognitive behavioral therapy and. Um, we could probably do a whole talk, a whole podcast, I think, on the um, current thinking behind the medical and, and physical therapy management of, of 3PD. But uh, that's an excellent example. We um, we, uh, we we tap uh, the expertise of our, our, our psychology to help us with that disorder as well. But... Yeah, in general, stress, anxiety go hand in hand with all vestibular disorders. So when necessary, certainly pull in the psych team that can make a huge difference in patients recovery for sure. Yeah, patients should not shy away from that diagnosis. I've had a lot of patients come in panicked saying, oh, my doctor thinks I'm crazy. They want me to go see psych. And we have to sit there and educate them that no, this is actually going to be a really helpful step in your recovery and your your treatment. So this is not something that someone's telling you you're crazy. It's just that there's been a lot of um, effect of working with people in psych or with therapy to complement what you're doing to get better. Yeah, yeah. That, that's something I bring up with my patients too. Is uh, I always preface saying like I don't think you're crazy, but just let hear me out. Um, <laughs> you know, and what I say is because you know bringing it back to a you know biology perspective. Um, you know, we've evolved to have this great balance system because falls um, can be fatal. You know, like back in the cave women and cavemen days when we were running away from saber tooth tigers or whatever. I mean, if we had a fall, that could have been deadly. You know, if we had imbalance. We couldn't we couldn't hunt and gather for food. And so when that system is challenged, it's very jarring because it's it's at the core of our survival and our innate ability to ambulate and, and just kind of be humans. And so I think there's uh, this area, there's a lot of research emerging about how, you know, why vestibular disorders strike at the core of, of our, you know, our, our brain and the and interact with the centers that modulate anxiety or in some ways, um, 3PD is almost like a post-traumatic stress disorder, but for vestibular, you know, and so, which is why, and I try to explain that best I can because um, uh, you're not crazy. This is a real thing that's happening and it's just, it's striking, you know, the balance system is, is like a very core, very rudimentary to our survival. And then, which is why dis disruption that function has a massive impact. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Now, Dr. Croson, you have um, some more training in the surgical uh, side of vestibular disorders. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Sure. So um, in the course of some vestibular disorders, oftentimes we, we talked about Meniere's being a, a, a popular one um, as far as uh, or rather a common indication for having surgery related to vestibular disorder. But in some cases, despite best efforts from uh, us trying medicines, trying diets, um, trying aggressive PT or multiple rounds of, of PT, uh, patients will still have uh, debilitating vestibular symptoms. Um, and uh, in the case where it's happening in one ear, um, and we've tried all these things and, and 
really had not made any headway, we, we started thinking about more invasive things such as um, uh, terminating the vestibular function on the side that is, you know, so-called acting up. Um, and what we do typically, um, it's, um, we can do, um, uh, not a surgery, but we can do injections such as you mentioned, Dr. Tate, genomycin injections, which chemically reduce or remove the vestibular function from an ear. Um, sometimes that, even that's not enough. We have to go in and we have to perform surgery to remove the um, vestibular organs uh, in order to achieve that aim. And so um, in cases where people have debilitating um, an ear disease, that's um, a common indication for doing what's called a labyrinthectomy. Um, also, in some folks uh, who have re recurrent, recurrent, recurrent BPPV, we also can do uh, a procedure to plug the, the semicircuit, one of the semicircuit canals as well. Um, so those are examples where if people have a refractory uh, vestibular disorder, we can, uh, as neurotologists, notologists, and, and some other oncologists who have an interest in this as well, um, can offer that level of, of intensive therapy. And unfortunately, it doesn't happen too often, but uh, in some cases um, where we just can't get a handle on the, on the disorder with, with medications and other events that we talked about, it's, it becomes necessary. Yeah. And also, how about acoustic neuromas? Yeah, absolutely. So... Um, for those who um, in the audience, you know, familiar, so we mentioned before, so vestibular schwannoma or classically called acoustic neuroma, it's a benign growth on, uh, typically it's on the sphere vestibular nerve. And um, uh, it's a bit of an area of a controversy as to surgery or not surgery or radiation these days in this realm. But typically what happens is uh, patients present with a, uh, actually not even really vestibular complaints, but typically an asymmetric hearing loss or having tinnitus or re-ring in one ear. And maybe their balance was off for a while and they end up in the ENT or neurologist's office or the neurosurgeon's office and we get an MRI and we say, hey, oh, wow, you have this little benign growth um, happening uh, uh, on your balance nerve. And what can happen is either this uh, little growth can stay dormant, um, it can be quiet and not grow anymore after we take the first MRI because we'll typically do one or two more to see if it's growing or not. Um, in some cases, if it's really large when, when it first presents or, or it's a grower, uh, we start talking about things like surgery to address that because where that uh, growth happens is in the, um, you know, just basically next to your brainstem and there's not a whole lot of room for growth in there. And so while it's a benign tumor, it's not a malignancy or anything like that, um, it can start pushing on some critical structures and, and so it needs to be addressed. So typically, um, when patients come in with an acoustic neuroma or uh, vestibular schwannoma, we do is um, give them all three options. Either we say we well, can watch this thing for a while and see if it's a grower or not. Um, we can say uh, if it is a grower or if it's big, usually we're two centimeters, we start talking about therapy. And so um, like you had kind of prompted this, Dr. Ross, um, we do have some surgical approaches that involve um, uh, a craniotomy typically to, to get at the area to, to remove that tumor. Good. I actually have one more question in terms of um, before we get into more testing, I wanted to ask, and of course, this is very patient dependent and diagnosis specific, but um, typically when you see a patient for an initial consult, what is your recommend recommendation for how long do they follow up with you again? Or when do they follow up with you again, I should say? Of course, again, very situational, but just in general. Yeah, very, yeah, I think... Um... That's a great question. And yeah, I mean, uh, globally, um, so uh, I, I think as far as, you know, moving the needle on whether or not they're going to feel better, we typically, when someone shows up in my clinic, we, you know, arrive at the most probable diagnosis because in medicine, um, there's never uh, one, one thing that's certain is that nothing is ever certain. Um, so we typically roll with um, what the most probable diagnosis is or the top two. And then we'll typically, uh, Come, deal, come up with a treatment plan, which may involve medicines, may involve PT, may involve both, um, depending on what it is. And then we uh, launch that plan and we plan to bring them back after a little bit of time, typically, um, you know, after a full course of, of PT, for example, which could be anywhere between four to 12 weeks, um, or after a, a real trial of medicines, uh, which typically um, can be anywhere between four to, four to eight weeks, typically as well. So um, because um, unless it's something very easy like BPPV, a lot of these things will require a little bit of trial and error for, at least on the medication side, to see if we can, we can hit that sweet spot, get symptoms under control, or we need to see how somebody's doing after a, um, a full course of vestibular therapy. And so, 
um, um, that's all to say, I don't think coming back every week, um, uh, that's for very specific reasons, uh, would be too fruitful or a good use of, of your time. But um, we, we typically want to see, we want to launch a treatment plan and see what the response is uh, after that treatment plan. And, and oftentimes, too, I'll encourage patients to uh, put together a bit of a symptom diary um, so that therefore we can make changes and see, you know, how, how many good days were before that change, how many good days were after that change. And so we need, that, we need a little bit of time to generate that data so we can make some informed decisions about whether or not we need to be changing things in, in the treatment plan going forward. Mm -hmm. Good. Um, I like what you said. I feel like probably in every episode we end up talking about how so much of our intervention can be trial and error in this patient population. What works for one patient might not work for the next. You know, it can have completely opposite responses <laughs> or maybe you're overdoing it at first in rehab. You have to pull the reins back a little bit, start slower baby steps or more stepping stones in between start and finish. It's all such a just a moving, so many moving pieces and parts and figuring out the whole, the whole picture can be time consuming by the time you finally get to the answers that you're, that you're seeking or what we say, the cocktail sometimes of what works. Yeah. I think you're, you also hinted a good point. Um, and just accept my point about kind of the most probable diagnosis. I think a lot of people like to have this idea that there's this one thing you know, they have this, this battery of tests that, you know, all supporting one diagnosis. But I think, and I also try to encourage a patient, we got to be a little flexible when we're thinking about things because we don't have the answer box for vestibular disorders, right? We can't put them in the CT or the MRI and boom, it says, all right, they got migraine or they got Meniere's. You know, we have, we have things that we can do to that are, you know, can push us to think uh, towards one diagnosis or another, but really, I try to keep an open mind and say, hey, all right, these are our top three most probable diagnoses. Let's chase number one and, and go with that. Because, uh, because oftentimes I think if we just, you know, put our blinders on and just focus on what we think is, is going on, um, you know, that's where we see, I think, treatment failure start to happen. And we, you know, maybe we'd be thinking of other, other probable diagnoses as well. Um, so I think that's a critical point that you bring up. That's a good point too, just in the fact that sometimes patients do have more than one diagnosis. You know, how common is it to have a bout of beef and BV while you're experiencing vestibular neuritis? You know, those, mm. those can sometimes go hand in hand, um, even beef BV and migraine or Meniere's and migraine. You know, there's a lot of times that these patients, if they've let their symptoms go, go long enough, that they can end up with layers of issues and then add the stress and anxiety of, of their symptoms on top of that. And now we're starting to perpetuate towards 3PD and it becomes very complicated very fast. Um, so having a list of your top three diagnoses and, and kind of going with what makes most sense and chasing that first is a really great approach, I think, because you're not ruling things out um, that could still possibly be a, a, a contributing factor, I guess I would say. Yeah, absolutely. I would agree for sure. No, we'll I want to, oh, go ahead. <laughs> no, you go, you go. I was going to say, I'm really excited to dive into testing um, just because this is something that I think uh, we can go round and round about. Um, so, you know, like you said, there's two different approaches. Uh, patients can either be put through the entire battery up front or they can be taken the, through the approach of let's evaluate you first and then kind of pick our tests based on on where we want to go. Um, so if you could maybe dive into a little bit of testing, what patients can maybe expect and, and um, you know, how that might go for them, that would be great. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, it's a bit of a plug. My, myself and some my Duke colleagues put together a bit of a textbook on this. Um, I think maybe two people have bought it so far, so hopefully I'll get a cup <laughs> of coffee one day. But um, but I, I'm saying that to say I have an interest in a cigarette testing and kind of the meaningful use of it. Um, and I, I think... Um, I don't want to alienate one camp or another because there are very entrenched camps, um, at least in the otolaryngology world, as to when testing is appropriate and not. Um, and I think there's good reasons to do both. I mean, those, I mean, you know, the one of the pejorative words for doing it up front is so-called shotgun testing, where um, the, the consult comes in and says dizzy, and, and so automatically we reflexively order a severe test, which, uh, as you mentioned before, can be quite provocative and uncomfortable. I mean, they don't hurt. Um, but if you have a severe disorder, um, you could be having, you could be uh, in for a very bad day that day, uh, as far as the, your symptoms being triggered. And so it's not pleasant sometimes. Um, but I will say is, um, you know, sometimes the rationale for doing that, uh, which you know can make sense is that say you, you're, you live in this rural area and you're coming from eight hours away, um, to this academic medical center, 
Um, if you're able to do the vestibular testing and you're hearing tests with audiology, and then you see the you know, otologist or notologist or neurologist or whoever you may be seeing, having all that data in that visit um, can be can expedite potentially um, getting onto a treatment plan because sometimes in my case, um, I know, so I don't do that upfront, um, but sometimes I, you know, the, the case history is complicated and I think having that data would be helpful before we make a decision as to what to, what to do next. Um, so, so I do think there is, um, there is a place for that so-called shotgun testing where, where just because the consult is dizzy, the patients get it. Um, Probably more often than not, it may be not the best use of our healthcare resources and healthcare dollars, but there is a place for it, I think, um, is one example that I mentioned as far as um, for, for consolidating a visit to, to expedite care, especially for, if access is an issue for sure. Um, but beyond that, um, um, say we're in the other camp now talking about we're going to pick and choose what tests to, what tests to do. And so, um, you know, the, the three kind of big battery of, of test options we have are imaging. So CAT scans, MRIs, uh, vestibular testing, which I, we can get to, I guess, in more, more great, greater detail in a second, as well as uh, a more limited role for, for blood tests and clinical laboratory tests and such. And so, um, for patients that are complicated and have um, potentially a history of other neurologic signs um, or prolonged vestibular complaints that got better and then got worse again, um, the MRI of the brain is very helpful um, because uh, especially in certain demographics such as um, Caucasian females in northern latitudes, uh, multiple sclerosis is, is quite common. Um, so that's something we have to think about as far as um, uh, ruling out that because that can mimic vestibular disorders. Um, and then um, diving into blood tests and clinical laboratory tests, again, being in the Northeast, uh, things like Lyme disease mm -hmm. is uh, common, um, as, as are other spiral diseases and you know, mosquito-borne illnesses as well can have these kind of prolonged viral sy uh, syndromes. And so... Um, and that's a uh, another indication where we may order a blood test or two. Um, and I have ordered Lyme and actually have found positive Lyme titers on some of patients before. Um, rarely, but we, we do, because it's endemic in the area, we, we do order those tests. But um, but circling back to the most common tests we would employ are vestibular tests. And so we've kind of um, hinted at them already, but there's the, uh, there's the caloric test, which is the uh, hot or warm air or water in the ear. And typically what we're using that result for is assessing the right versus the left balance systems. And from that test, we'll get this percentage score. It'll say either there's no significant difference between the right and left sides as far as their function, or we might get this result saying there's, you know, the left side is 34% weak versus the right. And that can be helpful. Um, for example, ruling in um, vestibular neuritis um, or um, kind of pinpointing if in a patient who has Meniere's disease, which year is, is the one, you know, kind of under attack by, by the syndrome. So that can be helpful. Um, from there, you get the things like rotary chair, which um, looks like it may came out of some NASA space laboratory back in the day or something like that. But um, that test um, is complementary to the caloric test. We also get a sense for how the right and left are doing, uh, but more uh, more useful is it's, it's, it's to help us diagnose bilateral um, vestibular loss. It really is the gold standard for assessing if somebody has a bilateral vestibular loss. In other words, both, both ears are down as far as the function is concerned. Um, and then um, from there, we have things uh, like postgeography, which um, as uh, I think it's probably used more in the functional world. I don't know if you guys uh, rely upon postgeography to assess response to, to PT and things like that, but less, less, less diagnostic usefulness and more on the functional side for um, uh, getting a sense for how um, if somebody's eyes or their um, somatosensory or vestibular system are contributing to their posture and their kind of global sense of balance. Um, and so that's also, uh, you may be signed up, uh, for that, depending on what your, what your physician or, or provider thinks you may be, uh, may, may be useful as far as getting some more information. And then we have things like, uh, V-HIT, uh, which is, uh, the video hit impulse test where you wear some fun goggles and, um, the provider will, uh, will thrust your head and in, in a couple of different planes. Um, and that gives similar information, um, as does the caloric, we can do it actually in every plane of all six of your balance canals. And so it can be a little more useful um, with that. And um, 
I think those are the um, the biggies. Um, part of the vestibular testing too um, are positional tests wearing um, goggles. And so we're not, not so much, um, you're not strapped onto a device or a device being something done to you, but we're also just, we're checking for your eye movements when we're putting you in different maneuvers, similar to when we put somebody back in a Dick's Hall pipe. This time we have uh, typically video infrared goggles on so we can track the eye movements with a little more granularity. Um, so I think those are the big ones. And then um, obviously we talked about before, um, because the hearing system is intimately related to the balance system, I think um, every patient should get a hearing test too, because that can also be informative, especially with Meniere's. And if you're thinking maybe vestibular schwannoma, maybe um, uh, lurking, that's also uh, very helpful as well. And, and I could probably talk for days about vestibular testing, but that's probably a good summary, I think, uh, as far as the, the big ones that are, are typically deployed in um, you know, the vestibular test battery. I think it's important too for any clinicians out there to be able to look at some of these reports and know what you're looking at, right? So you don't have to be an audiologist and understand everything on there, but as a, you know, maybe a vestibular PT, you should be able to know what the typical hearing pattern loss is for Meniere's disease and what looks like normal age-relating hearing loss um, or what's asymmetrical hearing loss that's not normal. Um, what a tympanogram might offer you as far as the results from that I would recommend. Um, even looking at tracings from a VNG and understanding you know, what nystagmus looks like and looking at a graph and how to be able to read that, that I think has some um, really good clinical information that, you know, PT should maybe take, pay attention to and start learning how to understand some of that testing, just because that could offer a lot of feedback as to what your patient might be, you know, have going on that wasn't just written up in the little tiny assessment at the bottom. So I think it's important to understand those disciplines and tests as well, because they're, they're tests, they're, they're needed, they're helping with diagnosis and being able to understand that is just going to greatly help your practice and help your patients. So that's huge. Yeah. And I, one thing I add to uh, Dr. Hayes is that um, uh, oftentimes we cannot get a diagnosis from a vestibular test too. So yes. they're, they're typically supportive of a diagnosis, but unfortunately uh, I know a lot, of, a lot of really smart people who are working on these uh, uh, tests of, you know, to develop that answer box for us. But um, I, uh, cause sometimes patients say, Oh, well, like I have this 36% caloric weakness on this left side and, and that's all the problem, but really it could be, um, you know, sometimes we see some of these test results in migraine, you know, which mm -hmm. like, how do we reconcile that? Because, you know, like migraine can, can throw us all sorts of um, uh, curveballs as far as how somebody might test. And, and so we don't, uh, we don't diagnose people with tests, but they're, they just kind of help fill out the story um, and, and kind of, uh, and also you mentioned before doing gentamicin injections and stuff like that too. We also use those tests kind of you know, before and after very specific interventions too, to, to gauge response. That's a really important um, distinction to make. And absolutely, that, that is something to, to really focus on that you don't necessarily just pop out a diagnosis because of your test. Um, what would you say to patients who are hesitant for going in to get an MRI? Um, like I, for example, I just had a patient come in today after seeing their ENT and go, oh, they want me to go for this, this water test in my ears. And they want me to get an MRI, but I think I'm just going to skip the MRI because I don't think I need it. What do you tell that patient? Yeah. Um... It's, it's a challenging, it's typically a challenging discussion because if you've had MRI before, not too pleasant, you know, like the, the wall is like, you know, three inches from your face and it's going bum, 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 bum. Like it just, uh, I don't think anybody would sign up for that for, for a fun Saturday <laughs> afternoon activity. Um, but it can really give us a lot of really good information. Um, and so uh, recently I had a, um, I, I had a, a patient where um, she had these vestibular complaints over many years and we ended up, you know, it just didn't, the story was kind of conflicting and we end up uh, finding multiple sclerosis, for example, on our MRI where, you know, so it's just um, because of the interplay between the peripheral vestibular system and the brain, um, I think in many cases, MRI is, is helpful, and particularly in cases where we've tried the easy stuff or we've, you know, we thought about BBBV and then things really didn't get any better or started the, the character and quality started to change. I think those are examples where um, where it's helpful to get the data, make sure there isn't any other neurologic, you know, central um, uh, brain issue happening that um, uh, that we can't just detect on bedside examination because we, we just can't we just can't look inside the brain that way, you know, unfortunately with with our best physical exam skills and, and whatnot. So. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a balance, but I, I try to, I just don't reflexively order MRIs. I, I, I typically, um, and often, you know, cause I'm at a, you know, tertiary or quaternary care medical center. We often get referrals, you know, from other ENTs who try all the, all the basic stuff or PTs that have 
have, you know, gave us this, this um, query being like, ah, you know, I still really think this is not behaving like BPV should, or they have this relapsing or remitting course and things like that. And so um, maybe if we did a study on this, the chances of getting MRI uh, after going to academic medical center, maybe higher, you know, <laughs> maybe possibly associated with going to um, the big ivory tower place that you go to. Um, um, but I think, um, but you know, if, if you question why your provider is asked this, say, Hey, like what you're thinking, like, you know, I don't, you know, obviously some, some of these MRIs can have high co-pays as well. And they're not, you know, completely, um, you know, safe in the pocketbook either. Just, I think maybe just press them a little bit and say, Hey, just, what are your thoughts? What are you thinking? Why, um, you know, what, what, what extra help can this data provide us, you know? Yeah, that's a good point. Um, finally, to wrap this up, because we have taken up a lot of your time, which we are very appreciative of, um, is how, you know, talking. <laughs> what was that, Abby? I said we tend to do that. We do. We just want to keep talking and talking all day long. Um, but how, what is the best piece of advice you can give a patient in finding um, vestibular expertise in their area? What is the best way to go about that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's great if you're facile with uh, Dr. Google, um, you know, searching is uh, really helpful. I think hopefully after our, our talk today, we've given you a bit of a dictionary of terms you can use to find the right people. Um, so, you know, for example, otoneurologist or neurotologist or otologist or, or vestibular therapist, not just a, you know, PT who may have done a, you know, a little bit of PT on the side or maybe, you know, I think hopefully using those correct search terms may help kind of uh, help, help you find the signal, the noise. Um, also the uh, Vestibular Disorder Association, so VEDA, um, they have an awesome provider database that um, uh, they've tried to be comprehensive as far as rolling out providers all over the country. Um, that can also be a, a resource as well. And I think uh, because a lot of severe disorders are chronic disease management, there's a lot, all sorts of Reddit groups out there and chat forums and other venues where um, patients with um, similar symptoms and, and diagnoses get together and say, hey, you know, I had a great experience with so-and-so or mm-hmm. and that kind of thing too. And so I, I think, you know, combining some internet skills um, that way is, is a great way to, to find the signal and know it's a bit quicker. Um, but I think, you know, principally, even if that's, you know, there's not an option or uh, you prefer to kind of go by word of mouth, using these terms, uh, vestibular therapist, neurotologist, otologist, or ENT with interest in vestibular or a neurologist with interest in vestibular migraine, that could really help refine, um, I think, refine um, your, the shortlist for, for places that you can end up and, and get good care. Yeah. And I always recommend people to, when they do find someone via Google, via Vestibular Disorders Association uh, directory, always call because yes. a call can save you so much time from a wasted appointment. There are so many physical therapy clinics that advertise that they treat vestibular disorders, balance problems, but then you get them on the phone and you realize they actually don't have a therapist who specializes just in vestibular disorders. They might know how to do the Epley and that's it, but that does not encompass the complexity of vestibular disorders. So getting someone on the phone asking questions, using these keywords that we mentioned today is super helpful. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for your time. I think this is going to be a fantastic episode with yet again, amazing information to put out there for people to find help and hopefully get back to feeling better. Um, And I'm sure we would love to have you back again sometime soon to talk about some of these other conditions like 3PD that we could probably go on for days and days. Um, But we'll save that for another time. We really appreciate it. We've really enjoyed talking with you tonight. Thank you. Oh, well, no, geez, thanks for having me on. It's great to, um, you know, the Syria community is not that big. And so it's great just to link up with, you know, like-minded folks. And and uh, obviously we're all just striving for the goal of, of getting people to the, the appropriate care that, and get them feeling better as fast as we can. So I uh, applaud you guys for, for taking on the, the Talk Dizzy to Me uh, podcast series <laughs> for disseminating all this, this great information. This is wonderful. Oh, and for clinicians who want to find your book, what where can we find it? Uh, what's the title? Where can we purchase? Sure, yeah. So it's called Vestibular Testing Drill and Practice. It's on um, uh, available on Amazon. Um, it's also available through so Plural Publishing, uh, which is based in San Diego, and they publish a, lot, a bunch of vestibular-focused books and such. And uh, it's a fairly short read. It's just um, basically we just describe the, the test battery, and then we go through about uh, twenty odd cases of real patients and, and their histories, and how the vestibular testing data influenced or can help kind of fill the story behind their disorder. So 
Well, yeah, I don't think it's ever made to the Amazon um, top 100 list, and I don't expect <laughs> it ever to to get up there. But uh, hey, you know, if you're if if you're looking for that resource, we, we found that no, there was a case-based book out there, so that's kind of what we thought would we add to the we, we contribute to the, the the body of knowledge up there. But. I like that. And where can our listeners find more information about you or about the practice that you're in, or anything else that you might have resource-wise for them? Yeah, sure. So, um, so my uh, clinical practice, like I said, so I am a neurotologist focusing heavily on vestibular. And so I am um, at Master's Society here. So you search, you know, Matthew Crossum, uh, M-E-E-I, uh, or Mass Eye and Ereal, you'll probably see um, uh, my mugshot uh, pop up pretty quickly and, and uh, with my contact information there. And if you're a patient and you're uh, in the area and wanted to come see us, we'd be happy to see you. Uh, so feel free to, to reach out. And then um, I'm also on the board of the or rather the medical advocacy uh, group and former board member of the Vestibular Disorder Association. And um, they are a fantastic resource. Um, so, uh, and they have um, all sorts of great pamphlets and PDFs and summaries of various diagnoses that we talked about today too. And so I would definitely check out Lita uh, if, you, if you have a chance. And they're at vestibular.org. Um, huge, lots of resources, definitely check them out. Again, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, we'd love to have you back again sometime in the future. And um, I hope you had fun. I did too. Thanks a lot for having me. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next week. If you're interested in finding us on social media or the web, you can visit www.vestibular.today for more resources, including testing, treatment, and educational videos blogs, continuing education classes, and resources including clinic equipment recommendations, suggested tests, and BPMBV treatment charts. Search Vestibular Today and Balancing Act Rehab on all social media platforms, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Also, be sure to check out Balancing Act Rehab at www.balancingactrehab.com, especially if you think you would benefit from vestibular therapy. We are your girls. The information on this podcast is not intended to replace the care provided by your qualified health professional or to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on Talk Dizzy to Me. Please contact us at Balancing Act Rehab if you think you could benefit from vestibular therapy.